If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're continuing our study in 1 Samuel, which began with us looking at the incident of Ebenezer. We saw that the last Sunday of 2017, and somehow we're continuing on. Last Sunday, we saw the two acts of disobedience that resulted in Saul's being rejected by God, which opened the door for a successor, not from his own family. There will be no dynasty in the line of Saul. Just to review quickly, the two acts of disobedience, the first is the incident at Gilgal, recorded in chapter 13. Jonathan, who would have, who is sort of the Prince of Wales, he is the guy in, in line, the Dauphin, he is going to be the crown prince, seems to have a knack for provoking the Philistines, and he does that so the Philistines come against the Israelites. And we read that there were 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The men of Israel are afraid. They hide in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some of them even cross the Jordan River going east to get away from the Philistines. Saul stayed at Gilgal with his 2,000 troops. He's waiting for Samuel because apparently they had an arrangement that Samuel was going to come after seven days and then they would go into battle. But Saul saw that the men were losing heart, morale was plummeting, and so rather than waiting for Samuel, he takes matters into his own hands. And in 1 Samuel 13:9 we read, So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went over to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. And as we saw, Saul was king. It is not his place to offer sacrifices. That belongs to the priest class, the priest caste, the Levites. He has basically taken on authority that is not his to have. He is a man of authority. He has political and military authority, but he does not have the authority to, in this matter. By the way, at this point, Saul is a different man than he was earlier, because shortly after he was announced as king, uh, there was a crisis, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead uh, said, listen, these people said that they're going to poke out our right eyes and humiliate us. Can you come and help us? And Saul was infuriated. He was plowing at the time. He, he took the, the plow as wood, cut up the oxen, and he said he sent the pieces throughout Israel, and he said, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. So at that point in his career, he doesn't see that he's the man and that he has all authority. He sees that, in fact, Samuel has the religious authority, if you wish. He has the political authority, and they are to work together. Well, by the time we get to Gilgal, yeah, Saul has pretty much taken everything on himself. And as Samuel tells him, there will be consequences. Your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
and appointed him leader of, of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So this is the first act of disobedience in chapter 13. Then in chapter 15, we have the second incident. And the first one, I think we might say, you know, he panicked, whatever. Um, he shouldn't have done it, but we'll give him a pass on that. God wouldn't, but let's say we would. Well, when it comes to chapter 15, there's, it's very, very clear. Saul deliberately disobeys God. The story goes back to when Israel first came out of Egypt. And even before they got to Sinai, they are ambushed. They are attacked by the Amalekites. And uh, through Joshua as the military leader and Moses raising his hands to God, they win, Israel wins the victory. But God says, listen, one day I will have the Amalekites wiped out. Well, the time has come. Saul's job is to go over and wipe out the Amalekites. So he goes over and he kills everybody except the king, Agag. He spares the king. He's supposed to destroy all the property, but his soldiers keep the best animals. And they say, you know, we've done this for sacrifice. Uh, well, God said, kill everything. But apparently Saul and his men, in their wisdom, came to the conclusion that, in fact, they knew better than God. So when Samuel shows up... Um, and Saul says, you know, praise the Lord. We did exactly what we were told to do. And Samuel's like, what is this I hear? What is these, these sounds of animals? And then Saul's like, oh, let's see, this is what happened. Um, we decided to keep all the best and offer them to God. Well, that's not God's command. They deliberately went against what God had commanded. And Samuel says to him, and he, that is the Lord, sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. Well, then you didn't completely destroy the Amalekites. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. They disobeyed because they thought they knew better than God. And then we come to that famous passage. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Well, if Saul isn't going to be rejected as king, that is, when he dies, that's the end of his line, who will replace him? This is where we come to chapter 16. If you look at the first verse, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Time has come to anoint a new king. Um, this is risky business, because how do you think Saul is going to take it when somebody else has been anointed as king to replace him? Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. 
So take a sacrificial animal from Ramah, that's his hometown, down to Bethlehem. It's about 10 miles away. And when you get there, tell people you're going to offer a sacrifice. I love verse number four. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Like, here comes the judge. You know, he's, Samuel is the judge over Israel. Why have you come? Who's messed up? Who is going to be disciplined? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. This is verse 5. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Let's prepare yourselves. There's going to be a sacrifice. Prepare yourselves. Verse number 6. When they arrived, Jesse and his sons, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Two things to consider here. First of all, Eliab was tall, and so was Saul. We didn't look at chapter 9, but verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. He had a son, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So here's a man who stands out in a crowd. And when Samuel presents him to the people, they see this tall guy and they're like, yeah, this guy should be king. Um, Samuel said, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. We've got a tall king. We've got a tall guy. He can lead us into battle. But he was not, well, Eliab is also tall, but he is not the Lord's choice. Interestingly enough, the language, I have rejected him in verse number 7, it's the same language we saw in chapter 15, when God has rejected Saul. The second thing in this passage, and this is a key for us for the rest of the study, is the principle that should guide us. And that is the Lord does not look at things the way that we do. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, as we've seen in this series, the Lord God Almighty is not a good luck charm that helps us get what we want. He is not an object of curiosity for us to examine and dissect. He is the one who has helped us. He has been our Ebenezer ever since, whether we recognized it or not. Centuries later, we will hear from Isaiah, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a key principle, and we'll see it again in a few minutes, that God sees things quite differently than we do. And Samuel, even though he is, I would say, at the top of the spiritual heap, if you wish, in Israel, he is a priest, he's someone who judges the people, he still goes by what he sees. And so he thinks, this is the guy. And God says, no, it's not. The selection process continues in verse 8. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons, his, seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Three things to notice here. First of all, is it said that David was handsome. But this is not why he was chosen. Good looks, mean, good looks mean nothing when it comes to being a leader or being uh, someone to lead people into battle. Secondly, he was anointed as Saul had been. This is done for the high priest. Now we see it is also done for the king. This sets the stage and prepares us for the coming of the one who is to come. The anointed one in Hebrew, Messiah, Messias, in Greek, the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. So this act of anointing David as king is very symbolic of what will yet come. Then the third thing, and this is the second key for what we're going to see in the next chapter, is from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The English Standard Version, the ESV has, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So this is key. So Two keys as we come to chapter 17. First of all, the Lord sees things as they are, and we are to see things as God does, not the way that we would normally observe or view things. Uh, Don't judge by outward appearances. And then secondly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, meaning in part that he would see things as God sees them. Now we come to chapter 17. And this is perhaps one of the better known, if not the best known stories of David. It is the story of David and Goliath. And I will say here at the beginning that I would suggest to you that this is a story that is much misunderstood. It is very familiar, but I think it is really misunderstood. Let's look at the beginning of the chapter. The stage is set. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Seco, or Soko, in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That is 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So this is the picture. We can, we can film this. I mean, it's here. You have two armies, one on this hill, one on the other, and there's a valley in between them. And in the camp of the Philistines, they have a champion, a giant, 
uh, a man, Goliath of Gath. Gath is one of the five cities of the Philistines. Um, he makes an offer and something that was not uncommon in the ancient world is rather than the two armies fighting and a lot of men dying, just have two people fight. One champion from each camp and whoever wins, that's who wins the battle and the other side has to serve the winner. The losers have to serve the winners. So this is what Goliath does. He comes down into the valley and he challenges the Israelites. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Very efficient. It makes sense. You don't lose a lot of men. Of course, if you lose, then that's not a good thing. But at least you don't lose a lot of men. They're not killed in battle. Um, there's just one problem, and that's that Goliath is a giant. And so this doesn't seem fair. I mean, it seems like he has a tremendous advantage. If you look at verse number 16, looking ahead, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Can you imagine being in camp for 40 days and not fighting? You're just basically standing there looking at each other across the valley and you have this guy who comes out in the morning and the evening, by the way, the time of sacrifice, the morning and the evening sacrifice, and he challenges Israel. But if you look at verse number 11, you see Israel's response. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Not an unexpected result. You see this giant of a man, kind of scary. Now David comes on the scene. Uh, Jesse's three oldest sons are in Saul's army. He hasn't heard word. I mean, it's been 40 days and nobody's been fighting. He doesn't know what's going on with them. So he tells David, go and check on your brothers. And he sends them with provisions, with roasted grain, 10 loaves of bread, 10 cheeses to be given to the commander of his unit, and just find out what's going on with his older brothers. And when he gets to camp, uh, from Bethlehem, he gets there just as Goliath is making one of his challenges. And he sees that the Israelites are terrified of this giant. And he learns more in verse number 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. In other words, there's a great reward if you can kill this guy. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? As much as to say reward, you guys are talking about reward? This guy is defying the armies of the living God. Well, the oldest, Eliab, his oldest brother, scolds him. Verse 28, he burned with anger and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? Uh, said David, can't I even speak? Word gets out to the king that, Hey, there's this guy who's, 
he's really talking smack. I mean, this guy's he's saying that something can be done. So Saul sends for him. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy and he's been fighting a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping your father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. In this conversation and what follows, we have two points of view of what's going on. As they look at the scene, there are two different perspectives on this. The first is one that relies on human wisdom alone. And that is, you have no chance. This guy has been a fighting man since his youth. You're just a young man. You can't do this. And humanly speaking, yes. I mean, it seems that David is out. He's overmatched. I mean, he can't. There's no way he can win this. But the other perspective looks to God, that it is the Lord who will deliver him. And the same God who delivered David from a bear and a lion will deliver him from this Philistine. And, by the way, he also has experience. He has killed a bear and a lion. Um, He he knows what he's doing. And I want to make that clear because I think if we're not careful, we will say, well, one relies only on human wisdom and the, only one, the other one relies only on God. And I would say, no, this, this view, David's view relies on God, but there's also human wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Well, Saul says, the Lord go with you. Oh, and by the way, let me fix you up for battle. Verse number 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. Um, let me see, I've, I've missed a part here. He tells him, let me give you, let me give you um, my my uh, armor. Here's my sword. Here's a helmet. And the reality is, David says, I can't wear these. I'm not used to these. For one thing, I think they're way too big for him. They're way too heavy. He's just, I no, I won't do this. Instead, he leaves Saul. He takes his staff. chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. Here's the scene. Here's this giant who's basically cursing Israel, and here comes this young man. Meanwhile, the Philistine, that is Goliath, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Again, let's stop here a minute. And what is it that we're looking at? What is the scene that we see here? We have an intimidating figure, it's said over nine feet tall, and a youth. 
a book that came out a, a year or two ago, maybe three, by Malcolm Gladwell was, was entitled David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And I think most people, when they think of the story of David and Goliath, see David as the underdog. Goliath is the giant, David is the underdog. But in an interview, Malcolm Gladwell makes it very, very clear. David is not the underdog. David is not the underdog. And you might say, what? Of course he is. Of course he is the underdog. He's not trained. He's young. He has no armor. Uh, He is facing a giant. He is overmatched. But think a minute. What were the two keys that we saw in the previous chapter? We are not to judge by the outer appearance. And that's precisely what we're doing when we see David as the underdog. We're just going by what we can see, our perceptions. And what is the second key? That the Spirit of the Lord had come upon David. How can David be the underdog when the Spirit of God is on him? David saw things as God saw things. He did not see himself as a victim. He didn't see himself as overmatched as the underdog. He saw himself as someone whom God would deliver from this uncircumcised Philistine. Listen to what David says to him in verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. By the way, I don't know if I would have put in that last part, the God of the armies of Israel, because they're a bunch of cowards at this point. He goes on to say, This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the birds of the earth, the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. These are powerful words, but I wonder if we believe them. All these years later, we know the story so well, but I wonder if we believe them. It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. As I said, we know the story too well, but are we surprised at what happened? I think that's the wrong question. The question we should ask, was this a contest between a giant and an underdog? And I would say that depends on who you see as the giant and who you see as the underdog. David certainly wasn't the underdog. He had the spirit of God with him. It's Goliath who didn't have a prayer. He didn't have a chance. And by the way, this has now been used as a metaphor, you know, fight the giants in your life. Or, or, you know, when you have sort of an underdog and you have a giant, it's like, oh, fight the Goliaths in your life. No. 
David has the spirit of the Lord. Many take this and use it as a motivational speech of how we can defeat certain things in our lives. And I would say this is a story of someone who had the spirit of the Lord, who saw things as they truly were and acted based on his beliefs. It is worth noting that when Saul was anointed, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. We're told this two times, by the way. The Spirit of the Lord, again at the ESV, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul. What happened? I mean, why is it that David can fight Goliath and Saul can't? I would say because at a certain point, rather than trusting in God, Saul went by what he could see. It happened at Gilgal, it happened against the Malachites. Rather than trusting God, rather than trusting the Spirit of God that had come upon him, he trusted his own wisdom. And in both cases, he thought he knew better. He went by what he could see. And he came to a judgment which was contrary to what God had said. As much as to say, I know better than you. It's like a child who is disobedient. And they're disobedient because they think they know better than mom and dad. And so David, uh, Saul had the opportunity to be like David. To go with the spirit of the Lord and win and instead he trusts in his own wisdom. His perception of reality didn't match up with God's. And therefore, uh, he disobeyed. In Psalm 44, we read, You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Though we push back our, or through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. Then more than five centuries later, after the exile in Zechariah, so he, that is the Lord, said to me, Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. These are powerful words, but do we believe them? Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 10, For although we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I would say the church has not been listening to Paul for quite some time now. That in fact, the world... Uh, the church is fighting the world, if you wish, using the weapons of the world. We have forgotten that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon us, that we are not the underdogs. We are not victims. Read church history, and it's something that I find very moving and yet bewildering, that the martyrs of the church never saw themselves as victims. And they didn't see themselves as defeated. They saw things as God sees things. They saw the bigger picture. The Spirit of the Lord was on them. Somehow we've lost that. We are the people of God. We have the Spirit of God. We should see things as God sees them. And as we began this series, Ebenezer, thus far has the Lord helped us. He's been with us every step of the way. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we look to him or not, he's always been there. 
One final word about the underdog and the giant. You may remember a story in the Gospels of a certain man who was arrested by the Jewish religious establishment and then handed over to the Roman authorities and ultimately was crucified. Do we think of him as an underdog? And the religious establishment and the military political establishment as the giant? I think we know better than that. The Spirit of the Lord was on him and he gave his life freely and three days later he was raised from the dead. I think we need to take this to heart. We have the Spirit of God. We are not the underdog. We should see things as God does and by God's grace act accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, we as our brothers and sisters before us face the temptation to see things the way the world sees them. To see giants as overwhelming and intimidating. We tremble because we think we have no hope. The reality is we are your people. You have saved us. You have given us your spirit. And we may suffer. We may even die. Well, one day we will all die. But we should not see ourselves as victims or as underdogs, but as your people, those who have your spirit. Help us to see that we should not view things merely from a human perspective, but we should see them as you see them. And may we remember that as your people we have your spirit and may we see things as you do. May our thinking about David and Goliath be corrected to not see it as someone who is overmatched and a giant, but someone who in faith with the spirit of the Lord acts accordingly. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us. We have a meeting afterwards. May everything be done decently and in order. May we have a sense of your presence throughout the coming days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.